welcome back to another episode of Shock Treatment. I'm your one of your hosts for this evening, Mad Mel. And then we got my dear partner in crime, Maddie. That would be you, me. Yeah, that would be you. How are you today? I'm doing all right. I don't know if I like to be, you know, called the partner in crime that makes me an accessory to anything you might be doing over there. You know what I mean? Well, I'm not doing anything wrong except for, you know, turning my house into the lair of Pennywise. I'm digging it. I was seeing those pictures on the book. Very good. The fans that follow along will be thinking they're in a time a time slip. I love this fucking curtain. Like, this is a shower curtain. I like that. Yeah, That's it's really a, cool. It's that a, it's they a took cl- the whole thing. Yeah, it's a cloth shower curtain. I bought because I, I was gonna remember because I, I was talking. I was gonna get one of those privacy board things, but then I was trying to think about how I was gonna fit that bitch in my car to get it home. And I didn't want to wait for one to be shipped from Amazon. Yeah. So I bought, I bought one of those um, little like portable closet things. Yeah. I have it I have it sitting on top of a giant tote. Because Justin came up with that idea. We put the coat the coat rack on top of the tote. And then I put the curtain over it and put it close enough that it blocks it. That way if Justin needs to walk he does Justin's not confined to the kitchen while we record, he can come by and I see, yeah, I support that. I think that's a real cool deal, you know what I mean? I just found out recently that my, the way the table, the height of the table is perfect for the way my microphone sits. That it could, It's completely out of camera. It's very nice. Yeah. Alexander Hawk will be cutting this up later in life. Big shout out to Alexander Hawk out there in the editing room. We're thinking of you, buddy. Good. We'll keep up the good work. Right. And I got, like, my cats are sitting behind me, poking at me through the curtain now. So today we have a wonderful guest with us. You know what I mean? Yeah. This, this is a gentleman that when I think of like king of the independent underground filmmakers, I have to think of this gentleman because he was somebody who I feel like when it little when when little independent horror filmmakers are dreaming of being, you know, big filmmakers, big. Uh, big independent horror filmmakers they look up to this man there's a dream that they look up to and they go wow it could really happen and that's this gentleman right here our boy mr jr bookwalter um director of films like the dead next door um ozone you know what i mean robot ninjas up in the building um a lot of fun films uh what i mean a lot i mean a lot a lot lot of films there's there's something for everybody in his uh catalog that he's been a part of we almost might have to add him to the list with balsamo on there i'm one of the hottest working people in the underground I like I said I I'm I, as I was going through I saw that he has a few movies that he did for Penthouse and I was like oh wow horror movies pornography starring, they kind of go hand in hand starring Alexander Hawk and <laughs> went back when he was a centerfold you see people don't know that about Alex Hawk because he used to be very slender he used to have the body of a gro- uh, Roman uh, god right. He still has the body of a god. It's Buddha, but he still has the body of a god. Well, you know, those Romans, god, they got heavier and they thought they were still great back in the day. So, you know, but so he gained all that weight, um, which isn't that much weight, realistically. But no. he gained that weight for a role. 
uh and it was yes he's officially role. yeah he's officially part of hollywood it was the dark, and losing weight for a it role. was the darkest role of all time it was so dark that the film itself was shelved and uh, was not allowed to be shown to the public because they thought they would kill people off so um rest in peace everybody involved with that and with that being said we have our guests with us we'll bring them on in so without any uh further waiting mr jr book walter Hello, hello. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing We're good. Pretty, doing pretty good. Oh, my, doing pretty okay, good. wait a minute. There's my video. Oh, I like <laughs> it. I was video list. Sorry about that. No problem. No problem. Thank you for being on the show. No problem. Happy to be here. How you doing over there? Good. Looks like you're getting ready to start editing something or working <laughs> or working on something in there that's and what I, he's I'm, got. Always, yeah. always working always working on something yes the offerings yes yes i'm maddie this is mel uh, uh next to me here nice to meet you nice to meet you you know what i mean we were just discussing about how you're probably one of the hardest working underground indie horror filmmakers well, I don't know how hardworking I am these days, but back in the day, yes, I would say that was true. <laughs> yeah, like going through your catalog, there's something for everybody. Yeah, well, that's what we tried to do, yeah. Just yeah. a little bit of variety. I'm digging the poster in the background. Oh, yeah, the Dead Next, Dead Door? Next Door? Yeah. yeah. A little, little hint of it there, yeah. Yep. You know, it's for the, it's the tr- it's to tell who's real fans because the, the name's cut off a little bit. So you right, but can you do recognize the artwork? That's yeah. The, to be able to call them out on it. That's right. So Jay, let's jump right on in. Let's dive sure. right on in. Let's do it. Um, where did your love for uh, horror film come into play in, in your existence of life? Well, I blame it all on my mother, who went after she had given birth to me. Used to watch Dark Shadows uh, she, when she was home with me as a baby. So. I blame it on her for putting me in front of the TV and watching the exploits of Barnabas Collins back when it was uh, first on. I got to admit, that was a pretty dope show. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, Hey, if you got to be raised on something, she, she raised me right for sure. So, Um, but that was, yeah, that was probably the beginning. And then I kind of veered into science fiction a little bit. I would watch a lot of Godzilla movies on Saturday afternoons and I was blessed to, be raised in Northeast Ohio where we had a ton of like horror host kind of shows. We had yeah. big Chuck or Hulahan and big Chuck and we had super host and we had the, uh, the ghoul for a while. And um, so there was tons of, they would play all this stuff. So it was very easy to be influenced by those kind of movies, science fiction, horror, fantasy, all that kind of stuff. You're saying that makes me miss the creature double feature days. When yeah. we were growing up here. Um, one of the, the local radio, well, TV stations used to show all the old Godzilla movies and whatnot on Saturday afternoons. And like, that was like the best thing growing up. Yeah. I think all that was just syndicated packages that I think all of us got to see probably the same kind of stuff. They would just package those movies and you would see all that, you know, the same kind of stuff, no matter what region, you you know, because people always cite Godzilla and King Kong and mighty Joe young and all those kind of movies. So I think we all had the same probably influences, you know, those of us that were raised in that era, I guess. Now everything's on demand, so you don't have to wait for anything. You can just exactly stream it. Yeah, whenever you feel like it. (laughs) Big change in the game. So your first short film, uh, "Burning of the Salem Witches," 
Well, that was not my first. That was actually one I did uh, probably, I don't know, fifth or sixth one. But I, that one was one I had done for school. We were stu- studying like, uh, you know, the colonial America and the, the Salem and, you know, the witch trials and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. I actually like in one night just shot this little thing called Burning of the Salem, which is really nothing. It was just, you know, the, the judge says you're a witch and they go outside and burn her. And then the rest of it's like my sister's Barbie doll burning <laughs> in the backyard for like two minutes until the, you know, the reel of Super 8 film ends. Uh, my first one was actually, uh, I, my friend David Barton and I that I went to school with who later went on to do makeup effects for Dead Next Door and a number of my films. Um, we had done something with Star Wars figures, just learning stop motion animation. So it was called Darth Vader Lives. That was actually the very first thing I did. 1978, I believe. Did you get Clarence on that copyrighted? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. But, you know, again, it's barely had a story and the, the stop motion animation was barely serviceable to begin with. So yeah. it, it, it's hum- very humble beginnings. Yeah. Do you have a memorable turning point that made you want to flip from just being like a film fan and to actually just getting out there and making it, making them? You know, I, between probably ages of 10 and 18, I probably made 40 or so Super 8 short films. And I probably even more than that that I started and never finished. So I think from once I started doing it at the age of 10 or 11, I would pretty much knew that's what I wanted to do moving forward. Um, you know, I didn't maybe think that I was ever going to make a career out of it necessarily. Um, but I just tried to do anything I could do to, to be shooting something and editing something and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know about the turning point. I guess it was probably, well, certainly the horror part of it was the first issue of Fangoria magazine coming out because they had these great, I mean, even though Godzilla was on the cover, you flip inside and there's this great four page color spread on Dawn of the Dead and it shows, you know, like the zombies shotgun blast head and all these very gory effects and that actually was a trigger for me because i suddenly was like went from being sci-fi fantasy you know with some horror to like being an absolute splatter nut like i couldn't get enough of that kind of stuff so that probably was a turning point you know for when i started to make uh those kind of movies you know to be to emulate that kind of stuff that i saw yeah because i I, well i because i watched um the dead next door today Oh, um, it's been a while since I've watched it. So I figured, let me revisit this before we do the show today. Sure. So I'm watching it and I'm like, wow, this really does. Ha- it has a lot of vibe of the Day of the Dead and like Dawn of the Dead, the way the characters interact with one another. Was that a big, did those movies play a big part? No, I did. There's something about George Romero's movies spoke to me in a very, uh, you know, uh, thoughtful way or whatever. I mean, that, that was a huge inspiration. I mean, I tried to do it in such a way where I, you know, there's been so how many zombie movies. I mean, at that time there weren't a lot, but I tried to do it where I wasn't ripping him off, but more paying homage to that kind of thing, but doing my own kind of thing thing at the same time. Yeah, sure. I bet. I mean, you, you, you couldn't look at that movie and not say, Oh, that was at least inspired by those movies because I would certainly wouldn't even ever attempt to, to deny it. I would proudly, you know, say that, yes, I was trying to do my version of a George Romero film. I think you uh, succeeded with that though, because it definitely, definitely had, you could feel the presence of those, those two movies. Well, as much as I love, 
Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, my favorite scenes in those movies, probably, and even Night of the Living Dead, my favorite scenes in those movies is when they show what's happening outside of, you know, George Romero's movies tended to be very um, claustrophobic in some regards because they, he would lock onto one location and that's where the majority of the stuff happened. And then next door, it's kind of more expansive because we're, they're traveling, they're, you know, in different locations, they find, they run across this cult leader that's in this high school so i mean i tried to open it up a little bit I, I, my thing when i would watch romero's movies i was always like oh but what's happening outside of this area i mean as fascinating as i am by this i would I, I always love to see what was happening elsewhere yeah it's so like watching I, the walking I, dead now yeah exactly i mean I, that's been done to death now at this mm-hmm. point but at the time that i made dead next door it was not you know even even a movie like return of the living dead which came out the same summer as day of the dead pretty much took place primarily in two locations that were next door to each other. So even that was sort of followed the Romero formula of keeping it, you know, somewhat claustrophobic. Yeah. So that was my, that was my big goal, I guess, when I, when I set out to do, I wanted to do it that way, but open it up a little bit so that you see a little bit more of the the world around these characters. Yeah. And when George was out of Pennsylvania and you guys were out of Ohio, it's kind of yeah. like, uh, you know, like kind of small town, horror in a way you know what i mean not quite city-like so i think that 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 whole vibe of it is you know it shares that in common that that feel of like yeah there's something about the midwest i mean they call this area the midwest even though physically it's probably more mid-east but um there's something about being raised in this area i think that sort of it's just something in the water i don't know what exactly (laughs) it is but it's definitely very inspirational. I mean, the same way that he came up and, and he had watched all those, you know, giant bug movies and all that kind of stuff growing up. And that was the stuff that he was into. And he, he put that kind of stuff into his regional movies. That was kind of what, you know, I watched his movies and all the stuff that he was inspired with. So it was kind of third, you know, time removed kind of a deal, but yeah, it's something about the regional kind of thing that, that you don't get it like the filmmakers who made things and, the West coast or other parts of the country. It's, it's a little bit different than the stuff that's made in this particular region, I guess. Yeah, At least I always felt so. So how did it come about that you linked up with Sam Raimi and had him end up financing the movie? An absolute one once in a lifetime fluke that would probably never ever happen again. <laughs> I actually yeah. was not, didn't set out to make the movie. I, I went to, I was thumbing through, I had quit, I'd gone to the Art Institute of Pittsburgh, which was a two-year school, and I took photography because I didn't have any film schools, film classes at that point. And I, at the beginning of my second year, my apartment was robbed. So I said, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm just going to go back home. So I went back, and probably within a month of that, I was just sitting around and flipping through Fangoria magazines and came across the old article on the Evil Dead. And um, I thought I realized, oh, wait, they're in Detroit. That's only like a four-hour drive from Ohio. So maybe I'll just look up their number. And it was Renaissance Pictures, called Directory Assistance, got the number, called, t- left a message on the answering machine, which that tells you how, how long ago that was, that there was such a thing called an answering machine. <laughs> and uh, to my surprise, a few days later, I got a call and it's, it's like, can I speak to, you know, J.R. Bookwalter? And I'm, yes, this is me. And he's like, this is Sam Raimi. And I'm like, just about fell out of my chair, you yeah. know, because you, that doesn't happen every day. And so I, my thing was, I, I pitched him on, Hey, I, I hear you're starting evil dead too. Can I get involved in some capacity as a production assistant whatever? I don't, I'll get you coffee. I, you know, anything. So he's like, why don't you come up here and we'll meet and we'll talk and we'll see what, you know, can happen. So I dragged my 
Super 8 projector and a, and a small selection of my Super 8 short films up there. And uh, he sat down and watched them. He Even as he, he started watching them, he made me stop at one point and rewind it. And he brought in uh, Rob Tappert and Bruce Campbell and Scott Spiegel and Josh Becker, and all these guys that were sort of, they shared office space together and made them watch the stuff too. And uh, so he, at the end of this con- whole conversation, he was basically like, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm hoping to work on your movie. <laughs> in some capacity. And he's like, well, you should, you should go make your own movies. I, and I said, well, I plan to do it at some point. He's like, well, if you get something together, let me know and I'll kick some money into it. And I'm, I'm, it, I'm only thinking, Oh, he's not going to hire me to work on the, as a production assistant on evil dead too. So I'm driving home and I come up with the, basically what's the idea for, dead next door and i he he wanted to just see a little investment pr- uh, proposal and uh, a treatment so that i sent him that a couple of weeks go by he called me back he said oh you know just the person i was wanting to talk to and i'm like oh really and and so basically he said look i'd like to make this with you and i i just you know could not believe it at that time now this again this was something we were going to shoot on vhs video i mean it was going to be a feature but it was not going to be I mean, it was always as ambitious as it wound up being in terms of, you know, zombies on the White House fence and all the traveling. I mean, that part of the script never changed from the beginning. But um, but yeah, that's that's basically the long and the short of it, how it happened. I mean, he basically was sort of a guardian angel at that point. He didn't he never really said, don't do this, don't do that. It was more just, you know, here's a little bit of money and go go off and make it. You know, it turns out when we decided to do it on a Super 8 film, I found out much later after it was done that he had shot a lot of super eight short films as well, but he had always wanted to shoot a feature on super eight. So when we made the change from video to film, that was him sort of vicariously living out something that he always wanted to do. He always wanted to shoot a, a, a movie and say it was on super eight. You know, we shot this on super eight film because there's not a lot of yeah. super eight feature films. I mean, you can count them on a couple of hands probably. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much, it was, it was that simple and, and that much of a, I fell completely ass backwards into it. I mean, it was just a total luck of the draw, I guess. Yeah, that's really cool, man. It's one of, it is, it's quite like an underdog. It's one of those like horror stories that you get, you, you hear and you go, wow, like a lot of you know, up and coming filmmakers and such, you don't find a lot of inspiration in that because it is like the. It is like that dream thing, you know what I mean? That it, sure. you know, everybody hopes that it would happen. That's very cool. Sam seems like a very good guy, you know what I mean? He is a very good guy, and he was a a, a perfect. I mean, because I would, you know, I was young, and I would yeah. throw temper tantrums about certain things or whatever. He yeah. was very cool the entire time. I mean, he was he and, and and the thing is, it 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 wasn't as quick and simple as we were trying to do it. You know, the idea was we wanted to have it done in six months or whatever and, and move on to the next thing. And it wound up dragging out four years, you know, um, with all the shooting and back and forth post-production and everything else. And a lot of that was because he was off making other movies. You know, he made yeah. Evil Dead 2, it was released. And then he went off to get his deal for Darkman with Universal. I mean, all that whole span of time, it basically you know, happened during the creation of that movie. So he was busy and we were having to cool our jets a little bit and that kind of stuff. But he was, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better mentor or better somebody who's, I see why he's gone on to produce so many movies for other filmmakers because he, I think he's, he just has that, 
what's the word I'm looking for? He, he's got that temperament for it. You know, not everybody does. I've produced movies and I've botched it, completely bungled it because you want, tend to want to take control or you're not doing this right. You got to do it this way or whatever. So it's not it, it, producing for other filmmakers is not as easy as it, you know, sounds, yeah. especially when you're bankrolling the whole thing. You know, I mean, that was his, he, his financial contribution on top of his creative contributions. So is your relationship with him is that how you ended up linking up with David Dakota? No, in fact, um we when I had after after this 3 or 4 years had gone by and we were trying to finish the movie, I happened to be out in Los Angeles. I because a friend of mine, two friends of mine were working on a David Dakota movie called Murder Weapon doing makeup effects and that's where I met Dave was on that movie, but Dave kept showing up all over town when I was out because I had just gone out on the bus with, with my friend just to hang out and watch them shoot this movie. But he, um, Dave kept showing up because he, the sound studio that uh, Sam rented for Bruce Campbell to finish dead next door was the same place where Dave Dakota had mixed creepazoids and sorority babes in the slime bowl, Bolorama and those movies that were done shortly before that. And so we just kept running into each other and I basically was the one that sort of cornered Dave at one point and said, Hey, you know, you know, I'm looking for I'm finishing this movie. And I had shown him some of it and he was suitably impressed with it. And I said, you know, if you have any, I heard you were starting this distribution company. If you're thinking about hiring any filmmakers, I'd love to sit down with you. And he said, well, let's have lunch and, you know, tell me what you got. And, you know, we went through a few couple of meetings, just talking things through. And I was originally going to produce some stuff for other filmmakers that I wanted to help out but it just wound up that we did some stuff together first and specifically robot ninja, uh, which wound up being my second movie, which was actually ironically my first movie that was released because that next door was still not released at that point. So that's how fast we made robot ninja by comparison. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I remember getting my hands on the VHS of, of the dead next door it was mighty difficult for a very long time. Yeah. That one was, that was one that I have to say, I probably shouldn't say this, but it benefited from being bootlegged because people yeah. would get a copy of it and make a dub and give it to their friends and they would get it. I mean, so people were seeing it on these like 10th generation VHS dubs. I don't know how they could even see, but, uh, but it benefited from that because the word of mouth was strong enough that, you know, people like actually liked the movie that they kept passing it on to other people. So by the time it actually did come out, there was, you know, there was an audience of people that were sort of, you know, waiting for it. And, you know, keep in mind that was back in the day. I think they were selling it for $59.99, you know, $60 to buy a VHS tape. Not everybody's, you know, financially equipped to do that. That's a lot of money even now, you know what I mean? So to, you, you, to pay $50 for a movie, it's got to be something, you know, old and rare or whatever. But that's what we used to pay, you know, back in those days. Yeah, it was craziness. Yeah, I think I think I'd rather spend the fifty dollars on a dope movie that is hard to find than a video game. Well, there you go. That's, <laughs> that's one way to look so at that it. Kinda, too. That kind of works. That kind of works in, to my benefit. But they right. even higher too. They they went up to like one hundred twenty five bucks, one hundred thirty bucks at times too. Yeah, well, the studios, yeah, at that point, we're we're charging a, uh, upwards of a hundred dollars or more back in those days. That's yeah, it's of- crazy to think that, but. Now you can pay ten dollars a month for you know a streaming service and get thousands of movies <laughs> right at the touch <laughs> of a finger. Days. Yeah, that's how the VHS stores would survive. They'd buy the you know hundred dollar tape, so the community wouldn't have to, and then they'd rent it out a bunch of times. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know the rental rental played a big part 
in, 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 in getting your films out there. You know I mean? Yeah, I mean, well, Dan X Star had a great cover, which I have to say, I didn't have any, unfortunately, didn't have anything to do with. That was the oh. original distributor, but they just they made that zombie makeup, and and you know, of course, it was inspired by the movie with the muzzle yeah. on the zombie. But just something about I, I've noticed, even if you go back to the original Evil Dead Two poster, that's actually Bruce Campbell's eye and that skull. Something about when you do like a face like that with an eyeball. Yeah, it's the same with the Dead Next Door poster, which is looming over my my shoulder here. But um, it draws you in like immediately. It's just something about that. It's like a great way to to hook somebody, and that and it and that's what happened. I I can't tell you how many times I hear people come to conventions or whatever, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, I remember this from the video store shelf. This box cover scared me, or whatever." You know, yeah. so. It, it, that's all big. That's a big part of it is the, the how it's marketed. It wasn't marketed like you see so many zombie movies nowadays that you you could look at fifteen of them lined up on a video store shelf. They all look the same. They don't. There's no variation. They're all heavily airbrushed and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that one kind of stood out. You know what I mean? I think that's why. I think that's why it's survived as long as it has. Yeah, and you got Bruce in there for night. Robert Tapert, does he have a cameo as a uh, one of the police officers no, as well? Rob wasn't it? Rob actually kicked in a few dollars okay, towards cool. the end of it, so he he had a small financial investment. Scott Spiegel was in it. Okay, Josh Scott, Becker, yeah, what, uh, yeah, Scott's Scott's ex partner Josh um, was in it originally, but his part had to be reshot with somebody else, and he couldn't make it. But he was in there originally, and then of course you got Danny Hicks uh, from Evil Dead Two. He did a, one of the voices. Yeah. Great. So there was a lot there was a lot of the of the people that Bruce and those guys knew that came in to do voices when it came time to dub it. Yeah, I always appreciated that about Sam because he wouldn't help out the whole crew. There was a lot Josh Becker, I believe, was also a filmmaker that yes. Sam kinda yeah. had under his wing a little bit. Yeah, um, for sure. You don't see that a lot. It's very cool to see him because he, you know, he got that, he broke in and he had he had that umbrella over him. And it was cool to see him help out other filmmakers for sure. Yeah, I mean, those guys all kind of were in high, a lot of them are in yeah. high school together or they met later. Still, you know, though, but still. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. You would think, you know, the, it, and they were competitive amongst yeah. each other. I mean, they would fight and stuff too, but they, you know, at the core, they they were brothers, basically. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, when you make movies together, you're down in the trenches. trenches. It, yeah. It's very similar to, not. I'm not saying that it's like the army, but it is like, the, you know, the, as far as the camaraderie and the all that kind of stuff yeah. without all the, you know, firing and guns and killing <laughs> well some well, killing, killing no some killing. killing but a different kind yeah, you're, you're the killing, killing. Yeah. Right. how was it to uh, work with and direct bruce campbell um well yeah i didn't even think about that i guess i did technically direct him yeah. when he did it, dubbed his voice i mean bruce is great we it's it's funny because he's another one that his temperament is so just laid back um, and when he was hired to do this post-production gig, I mean, he, you know, he was between acting gigs and he, I'm sure he was just doing it for the money, but you would never have known it because he threw himself into it. He, and we had to do everything from scratch because none of the audio was usable. So not only had to dub the movie, you know, the characters, uh, voices, but he had to build every single sound effect from scratch. You know, if somebody's carrying a gun, you got to have that sound. If the footsteps, you got to have that sound, the eating the guts, all that stuff. So, I mean, he did a lot of that stuff himself, you know, in that sound studio. It was him and the engineer and some, he would rope me in and say, get up there and make some gut eating noises. You know, most of the zombie, a lot of the zombie growls and that kind of stuff is me, but, but he was great. I mean, there, again, 
there were times where because I was young and naive and stupid, I would not get my way. Like he, Bruce had a tendency, we would fight over the music and, and I wrote the music and the music is not particularly like great. It's not like a John Carpenter score or something. <laughs> but at the time I was, I kept wanting him to turn it. We would fight over the fader essentially on the mixing board. It's like, no, turn the music up more. He's like, no, bring it down, bring it down. Yeah. And I still don't think I've made some adjustments to the mix over the years now that Bruce isn't there, you know, bringing the faders down. I can, I can bring it up myself, but um, so I won that battle event eventually, but, uh, but, you know, he was such a, I learned so much from him. I mean, that's the, really the big thing is, is just in, in how to do stuff and how that whole post-production process. I mean, I that carried that with me literally the rest of my life. And even, even now, I mean, I do post, I do a lot of post-production work on other people's movies and I'm kind of known amongst the, you know, the, the group of people that I do this work for as the cleaner, because they all like somebody else will screw something up and then they bring it to me to, to fix it essentially, because I'm the guy that knows how to do all this stuff now. So, yeah. So, but no, I mean, Bruce, Bruce was fantastic. I have nothing, nothing bad to say about that. Bruce is a good guy. He is. He, I mean, that he's he's a guy you you see him in interviews. You see him on on in his roles. I mean, that's exactly how he is. Like, because we would we would drive around. We go there was a Thai restaurant. We would go to next door to the sound studio. You know, he would take me to lunch and stuff. I mean, he's just he doesn't change. He's the same guy. You know, that is that is Bruce Campbell. The, the, he doesn't just put on that act for the fans. That's just how he is. Do you have you gotten involved with the convention scene? Do you go to any do any of the conventions and well not in the last year, but then uh, yeah. almost nobody has been the last year. Yeah, I mean I I used to go to them all the time and then there was a time period, I guess when I I moved back to I was in, lived in LA for about ten years. When I moved back to Ohio about fifteen years ago, I kind of stopped doing them or wasn't doing them as much. And then over the last probably five years or so I've started doing them again. And, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're, I, I, I personally, maybe I, I won't say that I don't like them, but to me, I, they, as being behind the table, I feel like I'm at a flea market or something like where you got it. Cause I'm not a girl, I'm not an aggressive salesperson. I'm not going to stand there and go, Oh, you gotta get this movie. And you know, I'm just kind of like, here's the stuff. If somebody wants it, you know, you can buy it. I'm very passive when it comes to the selling this stuff. So I'm not, I know some guys that are just like, they'll just grab people as they're walking by the table and, and, you know, suck them in and say, oh, you know, do the whole pitch. And I'm just not that one of those people. So for me, I mean, it's nice to meet people, but I don't necessarily like the flea market aspect of being a vendor per se. It's not, that's not as much fun, but when people come up and start talking about the movies or whatever, that, that stuff's all very cool. And everybody, I mean, I've, everybody I've ever met at a convention, such nice people and, and very cool people. I mean, it's, I don't, I really don't have any bad convention stories. And I've, I, at this point I have done, I don't even know how many probably, but yeah. so they're fun. Did you have that moment when you, you, you realized how many people actually, you know, really care about your work and you know what I mean? Well, I've never been, I've, I've never been comfortable autographing yeah. stuff and yeah. I don't try, I'm, unlike everybody else, I don't, I know a lot of places people charge 20, 30, $40 or yeah. whatever. Don't, I've never charged. It's like, if you want to buy a copy of the movie, I will sign it. If you want to bring your copy from home, I will sign it. I've, you know, that's, I'm not going to charge you unless you actually want to buy the thing from me, but um, it's still weird for me. I mean, even today, like when somebody asked me for an autograph, I'm like, I don't, I feel like I shouldn't be like, what, what is this? Why, why do you want my autograph on this? <laughs> so even, I mean, and it's been, you know, 30, 
some years at this point. So it's still, still a strange to me because I, you know, I was a fan and I was never a big autograph person. So maybe that's part of the reason, you know, I, I never felt like I needed, I've gotten autographs over the years, you know, from people, Romero and yeah. Tom Savini and people like that. But um, I'm not an autographs guy. Like I, you know, I have to have everything signed. Some guys want, they'll buy two copies of stuff and they'll, you know, they want one signed and one sealed. And you know what I mean? It's like, and I get it, but it just, it still feels strange. You know what I mean? After, even after all this time. It's a lot of money going around. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when you bring up uh, the composing and the, and wearing multiple hats, you think that was more like a, but like it started off more of a budgetary thing to kind of cut costs. Or do you think, I mean, I think everybody can agree that the more the, you know, the director, if you will, the storyteller has his hand in everything, the editing, the sound, the more it's his story. Do you think is, is it, more for that reason or more for like well, yeah i mean i'm i'm a pretty hands-on person i like to do all kinds of stuff and dead next yeah. door you know I'm, I'm in the movie i i was doing like explosive squibs on people i was producing it i was i obviously wrote and directed it i edited it you know so the score by the time it came to that i mean we had early on had tried to solicit local musicians and stuff to do you know guys had done like little demo cues and stuff and I, nothing that really struck me as like what i wanted and I remember actually um, when Sam had flown me out to finish to lock the edit on the movie, and he asked me, uh, "Who? Do, well, who do you? Who would? You, what were you thinking for the score? Because there was some conversation early on about Joe Laduca doing the score, who had done Evil Dead and, and a lot of stuff for Sam. And I loved his stuff, and I had his demo tape, and we'll play it all the time. But he, he asked me who my dream composer was, and I said, "Oh, I'd love to get." Carter Burwell, who had done Psycho 3 and, the, you know, the Coen Brothers stuff. And him and Rob Tapper just sort of looked at me and laughed. And I'm like, OK, yeah, I guess that's <laughs> that's not going to happen because he was at the point at that point, he was kind of a hot composer. You know, he had really doing nothing to suddenly, you know, doing the Coen Brothers movies and all that. We couldn't afford him, obviously. So it just kind of fell. I was kind of noodling around with keyboards and I, it was always something I like to do. So that's kind of how I fell into that one just by necessity and it's it's one of those things that i've always struggled and suffered through because i i don't consider myself a great musician i can make some cool sounds here once in a while and you know maybe out of like a third of the score will turn out pretty good and the rest of it's just sort of serviceable it's like background noise or something but it was just you know i fancied myself as i gotta be like john carpenter john carpenter scored his movies why can't i score my movies well because i'm not john carpenter that's why (laughs) I wrote, I, I read that and, and I'm reading this off a piece of paper because I don't want to like misquote it, but um, John Russo and Charles Band taught you how to cut corners and when and where to work harder in the name of the art. Yes. Well, yeah, I think I wrote that actually at some point from an <laughs> IMDb bio. Yeah. yeah. Cause I had, met, I had met Jack Russo at a convention and, and we did some stuff together for a while. And then obviously I moved out to LA some years after that, I started working for Charlie Band. And, you know, you, you pick up things from, if you do it right, you learn from all every experience that you do. You know, and I won't say, like, the Charlie Band way is more of a factory, you know, because we were making movies, we were working on so many movies, because I, I was overseeing his post-production for a period of time, and there were so many movies going through there. I mean, I had, a, a, like, 20 guys working for me at one point doing, you know, editing and visual effects and sound and all that kind of stuff. But you learn from that experience because, you know, each movie is a, is something different. You know, they're not all the same. They're, you know, you learn new sound tricks, you learn new computer, you know, animation tricks, whatever it is. Um, 
So, you know, if you do it right, no matter who you work with, you're going to, if you, you want to pick up as much wisdom and knowledge as you can. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> I learned a lot of stuff from Charlie. I learned a lot of ways that I to not do things or that I would prefer not to do things. Um, so it, it, it's a, it's a plus and minus, you know, I mean, it's just, it, it's like everybody. everything else in life you have. It's a, it's a learning. Well, if you do it right, you know, some people think they know better and, and, and they don't want to learn. My son, my 12 year old son is one of those people. He just thinks he knows everything. And he's not going to listen to anybody else. Well, you're not going to, you're not really going to get anywhere. If you do that, you got to keep your eyes and ears open and, and, you know, take these little bits of knowledge as they come. You don't have to do, you know, have to do everything that somebody else is doing, but the stuff that makes sense to you and, and you know, and, and everybody I've dealt with has, I've, I've experienced that, you know, it's, you, you pick and choose what makes sense to you, whether it's Dave Dakota or John Russo or Charlie Band or Sam Raimi. Now has your son seen any of your movies? He has. In fact, he's been raised essentially because I've gone back and restored a lot of these movies over the last few years. He's gotten to the sort of a front row seat because as I'm sitting in here all these hours away from my family, because I work, I just work from home. He's in the room watching what I'm doing. And he's actually um, some of the discs that we've put together. Like we did last year, I did this uh, ozone uh, signature edition where it's got the slip cover and all that. He actually packed up some of that stuff and I put him to work. I paid him for it, but he's <laughs> actually gotten involved in that capacity too. So he's, he's into it. I don't know. I mean, he's made some little short films with his friends, you know, just around the house and stuff so like a little, that. A little budding filmmaker. Well, it could be, I don't know. He's right now. He's a little all over the place. Like I don't, he's still trying to find himself by, by his age. I kind of knew what I wanted to do and I was doing it. I think he's going to take a little bit longer to figure it out, but, but he's into that. I mean, he, he likes the stuff. We had screenings, you know, theatrical screenings of dead next door and robot ninja after they were restored and he got to go sit in the theater and watch them, you know, just like everybody else. And I think that had a, made a big impression on him too. Yeah, it's always a different vibe when you see a movie in the theater as opposed to yeah. watching it at home. Well, especially I think even though he had seen most of Dead Next Door, I didn't want him to watch the whole movie from beginning to end until because I wanted him to have that theatrical experience because that, you know, most people have seen it at home on uh, a TV or whatever. And I think he was a little freaked out in a few spots. Like he was still young enough that he was like, you know, a little intimidated. By it. Yeah. Watching through his open fingers. Like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Even though, you know, his mom and dad were sitting there, he still was a little freaked out by it. With the way Hollywood loves to reboot movies these days, have you ever thought of doing like a modern version? Well, I wouldn't be averse to it. I mean, I think there's, you know, it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. It could certainly be done better with a little more money and a little more time and all that kind of stuff. So I, you know, I don't know that I'm the person to make it necessarily. There's been uh, several occasions over the years where there's been talk about doing a sequel. We've had a, I had a, you know, an old treatment and then we had a a script for a sequel and the, the couple times they've gotten close to being made, but for one reason or another, it just didn't happen. But um, I had an idea a few years ago for a, for a prequel actually, which would go back and, you know, sort of set the stage for where the, the, the first movie comes in that I might do one of these days. I don't know. We'll see, but that's a little more doable because all of my ideas for continuing that story or rebooting it, obviously would be much bigger. You know, you gotta have, you gotta have more money and more time and, yeah. you know, Bigger actors. Now, if you didn't do it yourself, who would be your like your dream director or whatever to bring in to do it for you? 
Oh man, jeez, that's uh, I mean, you know, nobody's ever asked me that question. <laughs> I probably, gosh, who would I want? Uh, wow, that's still working and around. Well, Guillermo del Toro certainly would be a, be a good one. Robert Rodriguez, that he'd be, yeah. you know, I think he'd do, he'd do a great job with something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's hard to say. <laughs> I just was totally on the spot with that one. <laughs> yeah, I, that that when you that came out of left field for me. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me that question. So, do you remember what originally sparked the uh, idea for Robot Ninja? Um, that whole project came together so fast. Yeah. Um, it basically was. I like I said, I had gone on the Greyhound bus out to LA to where I finished wound up finishing Dead Next Door, and then I got the deal for Robot Ninja, and then I was taking the Greyhound bus back to Ohio, and that's basically where I came up with the storyline. And I knew from the beginning when that title was assigned to me because Dave Dakota was like, "I had this title, Robot Ninja. Do you think you could make something with it?" And I was internally cringing, like, "Oh my god, what am I going to do with this?" And then I started to actually seriously think about it. I'm like, I knew I didn't want a movie about a robot who's a ninja or a ninja who's a robot. That was out. So I had to do something else. So being a comic book fan, you know, growing up and there was a whole resurgence of comic books, you know, with Watchmen and Dark Knight and all that stuff that was going on at the time. Um, that's where I kind of came up once I got that hook of like, okay, it's, it's a comic book character, but it's not like the superhero movies now where it's, you know, you're, it's a literal translation of it. It's like, uh, let's have the, the guy who created the comic book is frustrated and, and decides to put the suit on and try to be a superhero. Um, so that, I mean, that, the, the, the best I can say is that it was conceived on a Greyhound bus and that tells you something about how, torturous it is to go coast to coast on a greyhound bus <laughs> well at least it was only a movie that was conceived on the greyhound bus yes i'm sure there's <laughs> i'm sure there's been other other things conceived on a greyhound bus but yeah that was but i i think that a lot of the the dark part of that movie came from that experience of you know of riding on the bus i i blame it a lot that and my frustration with working so long on dead next door and then it still wasn't out you know, I, t- I kind of channeled all my creative frustration and in- into the robot, poor robot ninja. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was cool that you were still able to get the new one off the ground, you know what I mean, without the other one. Well, was- yeah, I mean, it was really just because it was so, so simple. I mean, it was, it was less money and less time, but we were going to shoot on 16 millimeter film. So that was the plus of it. And uh, the fact that it was, you know, he wanted it out by December of that year. And we, we shot it in, I think, June of, of 89. So it just, I was so into that idea. Like, yes, let's, you know, I don't want to spend four years on another movie. I just want to get something out, get this, you know, the second one out the door, you know, and hopefully move on to a third one. So that, that was where I was at at that point. Yeah. Did you or anything that was in the works prior to COVID? You know, I haven't shot anything in quite a while. I've been mostly on the distribution side. I have this website, Make Flicks, that I'm, you know, selling my films as well as uh, stuff from other filmmakers. And I've been keeping busy with these restorations. I've, I've basically gone back and have, have just one by one sort of, you know, squeak, made these movies look squeaky clean, you know, and put them out on Blu-ray. Uh, Dead Next Door was first, and then I did Robot Ninja. Skinned Alive was just released last year as well as Ozone, which was uh, one a later one that was shot on video. And just kind of making my way through the back catalog, kind of revisiting the movies, but doing, kind of hopefully trying to clean them up a little bit to 
uh, because they were never very well represented back in the VHS days. We always, we never had enough money or technology or time, you know, that it's, they're the same movie, but it just, they're just a little bit cleaner and more palatable for, you know, because on an audience today expects something a little, you know, yeah, I was gonna say now you get to open it up to a whole new audience as well. Yeah, with and the that's re-release. the thing. That's the crazy thing is there, there's this whole group of collectors now that just they they love this stuff and that they you know it's of course they consider it vintage, which makes me feel old, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, God bless them because it's it's you know there's the the group that remembers the stuff from the you know went from renting it or whatever back in the day. Plus, there's all these new guys that are oh, so hungry for new stuff. You know, they don't want the Hollywood stuff. They want to see, you know, this old stuff They're like what Robot Ninja? I never heard of this movie. What is this? So it's great because there's, you know, that you, you can have it both ways there. And I think the stuff is being treated more fairly now than it was when it was first released. A lot of these movies were just critics were so dismissive of them. And, you know, if they were reviewed at all, they were more ignored probably than anything else. They would just go straight to the video store shelves and then disappear. Um, even though we had, you know, we had a lot of, back in the day, it was magazines, you know, you had a lot of magazine coverage, um, of the stuff and I've got boxes of old clippings and stuff like that. So it's not like they were completely ignored. There was always fans for the stuff, but, um, but I think they're treated more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're treated with more respect, I guess now than they were back in the day. They're not treated like Rodney Dangerfield anymore. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a very good analogy. Yes. Well, temp video, uh, Tempe video there to close their doors. Was it like two years ago or a year ago? Yeah, that was when I started. I kind of just really just mainly didn't want to be the type of distributor who was, I was picking up a lot of stuff and I yeah. just kind of didn't want to do that. I wanted to keep the stuff alive. I kind of created Makeflex as, as a hub for, to find a new way for independent filmmakers to kind of rally together and get the stuff out there because you know, the, the market has changed so dramatically where, you know, VHS tapes on a video store shelf. Now it's, you're just trying to get, you know, people's eyeballs on a, on streaming or get them to buy, you know, it on DVD or Blu-ray or whatever, but you've got all these corporate, you know, monopolies sort of blocking the way that, you know, yeah. between you and the audience, the Amazons of the world and, and the Netflixes of the world and all that kind of stuff. So I just wanted to cr- try and create a new boutique outlet to you know to where we could deal directly with the customers and the fans that are looking for these kind of movies so that's what i've been i mean i it wasn't so much that i I mean i I guess i really haven't killed tempe because even though i did kill it it's still you know it's still around because i'm restoring still releasing them but i don't know that there'll be anything new you know under that name but um, but yeah, it, it was just something I felt was time to, I kind of had, had run its course, you know, I'd released everything on DVD and it just felt like time to try something a different way. I wanted to make the transition to Blu-ray. That was kind of the main impetus to do it. Yeah. yeah with the streaming thing, you're paying it forward like Sam Raimi himself. I like that. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of it is just trying, you know, yeah. to, I meet filmmakers and they're they're they have the same frustrations and they're like you know we can't get our stuff out there we've gotten ripped off by other distributors and you know so i tried to create a model that wasn't you know the traditional model is you give somebody your movie you probably aren't going to get paid anything up front and then you're probably never going to see anything down the road either and i know a lot of filmmakers that that's happened to i've always tried to keep more control of my stuff and so that i don't have to you know i the downside is 
you wind up selling less units, but the, you have, it's more creatively satisfying. You're make, maybe making less money, but you're not feeding somebody else's machine either at the same time. So yeah. the system I have now, you know, I'm not, I'm not licensing the movies. I'm just working with the filmmakers. And every time they sell a disc, they get money, you know, and that's, and they're, they're giving me the discs. I'm selling, it's more of a consignment model, I guess. Um, and you know, they, most of them are very happy. I mean, nobody's getting rich off of it, but they're getting the stuff out there and they're introducing it to a new audience and the customer base keep continues to grow. You know, people are, are fine. More and more people are finding it. And last year I had a great, second year with make flicks because we released some really good stuff and and you know that that just the momentum by the end of the year we did this sov six pack which was going back to some of the lesser movies i had made and repackaging them you know they were all restored and cleaned up and all that stuff with new extras and put it in a, this like almost looks like a happy meal you know like a horror happy meal box and people just went nuts for it and I was like, wow, you know, these movies were so, treated so disrespectfully back in the yeah. day, you know, it's about 30, it's 25 years ago, whatever. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's the idea is to try and just, you know, help other filmmakers get their, their stuff out there too, and just pay it forward. Like you said, I mean, that's, yeah. that's what it's all about. Yeah. I don't know. I think with me, I think like too, like, um, I like the gore factor better in the older, the older movies, like, or you know people love to say the b horror movies i love the practical effects because yeah. you know that i don't know just something about the blood and the guts when it's a practical effect as opposed to cgi it's just a lot more gory to see somebody yeah, I mean, you know you, you know you want it's it's fun trying to watch somebody bite into like a a, a rotten sausage or something to make it look like an <laughs> intestine or well there's something, that, there's something about it too that it, it's Almost like you're on the edge of your seat because you don't know if the effect's going to go bad. And that, ha- that happens a lot where you shoot something and it's like, well, that didn't really work, but we'll edit it this way or we'll do what, you know, we're with CGI, you can make it look so perfect. I mean, I, relatively perfect that it doesn't have that. You're just watching it and you're just like, well, okay, yeah, that was cool, I guess. You know, it's just you don't have the same reaction to it. If you watch some, you know, like some neck bite and, Dawn of the Dead or these older movies, you can tell that they're actually somebody was on the set going through that and probably getting accidentally bit or whatever. You know, it's just it has it feels more realistic. I don't know. I sound like an old it man. It looks probably. more realistic. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, and it and it and it's somewhat um, not more dangerous, but it's more. It just has a more of a. Uh, I'm I'm lo- losing the word that I'm trying to say, but it just natural. Yeah, it just it, it just feels more right i don't know i guess and you just i mean even you see movies now where they they don't even bother to you know do squibs because it's all just you know you shoot some somebody in the head and it's like and you know it's not real obviously but it's not even a squib it's just all computer generated and it just doesn't i don't know it doesn't have the same real have the same effect to it well because now we're at the i mean with movies like avengers endgame and all this stuff i mean i i like that movie for what it was but it's just we're, we've reached a point where it's just, they can literally create anything. So now you're not, there's not really any surprise. It's like when you see some huge like planet, you know, or universe ending kind of thing, you're just sort of like, eh, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. But you know, you're, it just, it's almost too big and too grandiose. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah. There's just something, something about uh, like, get trying to fight and you know come up with the money just to do 
an indie film as opposed to being handed millions of dollars <laughs> to put out the yeah, big budget. Yeah, I mean, because when you have that, and you see the, the end credits of these movies where they're the credits are almost minus. as long as the movie oh my gosh like so many people it takes so many people more people to work on these computers that it's insane i mean you know we never had we had some of the movies like dead next door we had probably 35 40 people you know cast and crew something like that that was a big cast and crew for a little movie back in the day but that's nothing compared to you know we had to pad out the credits just to make them long enough because everybody was getting two and three credits but now it's you know the the these computer artists it's just insane. Yeah, yeah, it was good when when, when the temp, when Tempe closed, it was very like sad. But the one thing I did, I, it was cool to kind of see the fans show love and appreciation throughout all the years. I yeah, I mean, cool. I I was very humbled by that because I you know I had hadn't done anything in a while, and I had even the distribution stuff had kind of fallen off, and and it was really just. For me, I was, I just wanted the closure part of it, but just to see so many people come out of the woodwork and go, you know, we, gosh, we remember this stuff so fondly. And, you know, I'm like, the movies aren't going anywhere, guys. The stuff's still going to be here. You can, you'll still be able to stream it. You can still buy the, you know, I wasn't taking anything away from anybody, but it was just nice to see that so many people remembered the stuff, you know, that was cool. You've been in the game for many years, and you know, we we often hear people talk about how things have changed. What are some of the most drastic changes you've seen in you know making making your film and releasing it to the public over the years? Well, I think the biggest one for me, you know, there there when I was making this stuff, and I'm going to sound like a grumpy old man, but <laughs> you know, there was a, there was like legitimate challenges, and I'm not even talking about you know when I started, I was shooting on film, and that's uh, its own animal because you have to shoot it and then have a lab, you know, process it. You don't even know what you're going to get until you see it, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But it was a more physical thing, you know, like even though we didn't cut the super eight film on the next door, we did cut it on. I think, did we films, freeze? You know. Oh, cool. I think we did. Oh, there <laughs> I'm back. back. I'm back. Sorry. <laughs> I'll back, back up. I, I was froze up there. Um, but there was something more, well, it says my internet connection is, I don't know why. All right. Um, it, uh, it's, there was something more physical about it back in those days. You were actually touching the film. You were cutting the film. You had to think about what you were doing. You know, I mean, now it's all so snip, snip, snip. snip. You just put it in a timeline and you can move clips around. You can put all these filters and effects and there's no, it's frictionless really. I mean, it's, it's, that's what it, that's what I'm trying to say. I guess it's, you can do anything. So, you know, there's, you don't really have to think, you don't have to suffer for your art necessarily. Yeah. I mean, there's always the financial suffering, like, Oh, we don't have any money. We're doing this for free or, you know, cheap or whatever yeah. that never goes away. But, but for me, the biggest challenge and really, I mean, there's a lot of people making movies that probably shouldn't or haven't gone through the proper learning curve. You know, I mean, I shot a ton of, short films before, and I learned, you know, I still, even when I, by the time I made dead next door, it's far, again, far from a perfect movie. I learned from doing that and took that knowledge to the next one and to the next one. And, you know, they're never, none of them are ever perfect. That's the thing. It's like, it's a, it's a continual learning curve because every experience is different. You might have some money on this movie and no money on that movie. And, um, you know, different scripts, different stories, different actors, you know, different crew, all that kind of stuff. But I think for me, it's just, it's it's so simple 
to make any, anybody can just, I mean, anything that is shot with an iPhone looks better than anything that I shot 30 years ago, you know, even, without even any lighting, you just point it at anything and it's going to look better. So it's just, I kind of liked when it was a little more difficult and a little more challenging. And you know, I think the challenge has kind of take, been taken away from it to some degree. So. Yeah. yeah. I remember Francis Ford Coppola, like uh, in the late nineties or something like that said, so, had some quote about how like the future greatest filmmaker is going to be somebody who just does it on their phone or something like that. Like, well, he, more, I think his exact quote was of some fat girl in Ohio was going to, was going to make like the next, like, I think that's exactly what he said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at the time I saw that, I was like, Oh my God, yeah. that's hilarious. Yeah. But, it's uh, true. True though, you know. Ohio, I thought it was particularly. Meanwhile, funny. there, meanwhile, there's some fat girl in Ohio that, you know, feels, insulted by that guy. well yeah i mean <laughs> that's not politically, yeah, not politically, not politically correct, correct now <laughs> <laughs> you, get the, you get the last laugh it's like hey i'll be a little you know i'm i'm not the thinnest i'll be the i'll be the, yeah, I'll, be the francis... I'll be the fat girl in ohio making that movie it's all good <laughs> yeah exactly and francis Ford coppola is not exactly a slender man either so he's, you know, yeah. he's got a lot of room to talk there there's just just so many people they take everything to such a a, a new level now with, with things being said and being politically correct is like, well, it's a little, it's a little out of control. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Like, yeah, a little bit. it's like, you, I don't know. A lot of, it's hard to think that a lot of these people grew up in the 80, the seven, late seventies, eighties, like pretty much with us. And it's like, how did you survive growing up? And you're this soft now. It's more yeah. of a now thing. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's true. It's very true. Exactly. More of a now thing though. Yeah. But like, just, just like I, I would love to see somebody's like reaction to the to the movie now, as opposed to watching it then. Like, it, just to see the reaction. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's the time. The times have definitely changed. Did you bring it back into the movie after talking about political correctness? Twisted I'm sorry, what was that? Oh, I was talking to Melissa. Melissa. Oh, I know. I got confused for a second. No, I I just like I I I love to see people's takes on things. Yeah. You know, because like something that I don't find offensive because I there's not much that I take offense to, but if I don't take offense to it, you know, you know, you got Karen next door <laughs> who will be offended well, by like everything in the movie. So- it's also, I think, a time and a place, you know, same thing with like the way it's with music and stuff, you know, like uh, people that, you you know, 20 years ago, you listen to a certain type of music with them and now they'll list they're 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 dancing, crying to Taylor Swift. You know what I mean? It means yeah. something, well, it means I mean, something different I, to them. I think it goes back to what I was saying, too, about how, you know, the filmmaking is, is so frictionless and easy now. But it's also that the political correctness thing, it's kind of the same thing, because. I remember, you know, when we were making these movies, we would find any, we would pick on each other, you know, like where there were the core crew of people, we would, we would tease each other mercilessly, find just every little flaw. And it wasn't, you know, I, I would dish it out, but I would take it too, you know, from other yeah. people or whatever. And we had nicknames for each other. I mean, stuff that you probably wouldn't you'd be able to say to people now, you know, not without getting a, the stink eye or the evil eye. But, you know, I mean, that was just, it, it, that it builds character, makes you stronger. Do you find like when you're editing these movies now to remaster them, do you ever come across something and you're like, oof, how, 
is this going to work now? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a I little. I don't worry so much about that because I, I don't want to change them so much that they're different than what they are. I mean, they are, you know, just you want to like Robot Ninja in particular, when I restored that one about a year and a half, uh, two years ago, that was a real labor of love because that one was completely botched by it was kind of out of my hands, the post-production and everything. And, and it was never very representative of the movie that I felt like we had made, you know, even though it's the same movie, essentially, but you know, I went and did a whole new sound mix for it and, and fixed all the, the visual flaws. And, and when you see it transferred, it's sort of like, oh, my God, this movie actually like the guy who lit it and shot it actually knew what he was doing. You know, I mean, it doesn't look like, a you know, as amateurish. It actually looks, you know, like a better movie um, compared to, you know, the way it was treated 30 some years ago. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 riding a fine line because you don't want to be, I don't want to be George Lucas and completely like start adding special edition scenes. And, you know, you don't want to do that. You want to still keep it as the movie that people remember. Yeah. the and, purity. But that's the thing too, is with these releases, you know, the other thing I'm doing is I'm leaving the, the, the raw VHS version on the disc as well. So if you, if you remember the way it was, you know, with the FBI warning and the whole nine yards, you know, the, the old sound mix, all that stuff, it's on that, the same disc too. So you can watch it new the new way, or you can watch the old way. You've got both, you know, freedom of choice, I guess. I like that. That's cool. Yeah. Well, do you have uh, do you have any advice for anybody you know coming up that, that wants to maybe be a filmmaker? Um, we usually give people advice to just kind of get a group of friends and go make something. But do you want to uh, give those folks, or maybe someone that doesn't even more rare, more rare, but wants to get just distribute films, you know, maybe not want to make them, but get into the distribution game. You know, it's such a, it's such a different world now because, you know, anybody can shoot something in an afternoon, finish it, you know, that evening and have it on YouTube that night, you know, where that was never, that never existed. You know, back in my day, there was a magazine called Cinemagic where you were lucky enough, like somebody would shoot a little short film and send it, to the magazine and maybe you saw a black and white picture, you know, of what the creature from the movie and a little like two line synopsis. And that's the best you could, you, you'll probably never see that movie because it's never going to get sold or whatever. Um, so I don't know. It's such a, I wouldn't, I, I, I hesitate to say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be starting out now. It's yeah. on one hand, it's so simple to, to get started, but then there's so much, so many people doing it that it's just so easy to just get, overlooked like I've, I've dealt with some newer filmmakers that i tried you know i thought i met them and liked them and tried to help them get their movies sold and and it's just you throw it out there and it's just literally like nobody pays any attention you know and it's heartbreaking because it's like you like the guy made a good movie it's and it's just you know why aren't people watching this what is it going to take to get you know because there's so many you know we have how many streaming channels and services and all the you know there's just so many places that it's easy to get lost um so i you know but you can't let that stop you either you know you got to have that's the that's the real i guess that's my my piece of advice for the evening is you have to i always felt that you have to have a certain amount of ignorance and a certain amount of persistence to sort of survive the business the ignorance comes because you have to blind yourself to some degree and not you have to kind of uh, mute all of the 
you know, the critics and the naysayers and the it could be your parents, whoever it is that are telling you, oh, you're never going to do this. This is crazy. Why, you, you know, there's, you're always going to have somebody tell, it doesn't matter whether you're a musician, a filmmaker, whatever, any kind of artistic endeavor, somebody's going to be poo-pooing it and saying, no, you shouldn't do that. So that's where the ignorance comes in. You got to just sort of blind yourself because ignorance is what benefited me on i'll give the, the case of the dead next door you know we just we wanted i wanted zombies on the white house fence so i just went down there and shot it you know it didn't have permission to do it we just did it you know that's where the ignorance comes in and and it worked in my favor now somebody i would do not recommend anybody to try to do that now because yeah. they'll be shot on site yeah, so. yeah i was just gonna yeah. say that i, I, yeah. I even yeah. even then i would have loved to have seen the reactions when you went up to film that scene well, we got we did get pulled over by the White House police, the Secret Service, the FBI, the CIA. They all came out to to see us. <laughs> but they realized that we were just a bunch of dumb kids. I mean, really dumb kids. And they let they let us go and didn't confiscate the film or anything. So that's why we have that piece of film. But anyways, the the ignorance is one thing. The persistence is obvious. You know, you just have to you just have to keep forging ahead and, and see your own sort of grand picture, you know, in your, in your mind's eye of what you're reaching for and then just figure out, figure out how to get there. You know, I've, I've learned more from failure than I've learned from any success that I've had. So you, you know, you get kicked in the nuts, you fall on your face, you, you know, you get get back up knees, you just got to, you know, yeah, you just got to or try it a little bit different way. You learn from the experience and say, well, I'm not going to do that again. I'll do it this way. You know, that's I don't that's think, what it, but that's that's the great thing, too, because I think a lot of people that are in the filmmaking industry, if we allowed everyone to knock us down and make us not fulfill our dreams, there wouldn't be any movies. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, that's you know, what I'm saying. Good, at every turn, you're going to find somebody that's trying to block you or, you know, or that's jealous or that's, you know, just there's so many, so much negativity in this business in particular that it's easy to get burdened by it or, you know, just, you know, you go, I mean, actors, I feel, I feel really terribly for actors because they have it the worst. They're going constantly to auditions only to be saying, you're not what we're looking for. Well, what, you know, the, the, the worst kind of possible thing, you know, I, I tried the times that we've auditioned actors, I always try to have a little more sympathy for them because they're just treated like cattle. It's like, oh, well, we're just looking for a certain type. And when we see it, well, that's the guy that's going to get cast. You know, yeah. it's it's a brutal business. Yeah. So, you, everybody's like, oh, you're too old. You're too young. You're too tall. You're too short. You know, so yeah. like- Maybe if, you know, 50 pounds lighter. It's just, you know, there's just so many, so much negativity um, that I don't know how any actor can come home at night and look in the mirror and go, I'm going to do it the next day. You know, just, you go back for more abuse, but on every level, it doesn't matter what your job you're doing in the movie industry. It's, it's, there's a lot of roadblocks that you have to figure out how to circumvent. Uh, we, we do, ind- we're, uh, we do independent film over here and I always tell the actors, I don't know how they can do it because not only do you have that element of it, but in like the low budget world, you know, you could dedicate a year of your life and the film never come out or, you know right. what I mean? And all these other crazy elements that get added to it. It's just like, oh, I'd hate to be an actor. Horrible lifestyle. Horrible. Well, I mean, and, and that's the thing. You they, they have to have such lucky odds to get yeah. a, a role in the first place. And then you got to go through all the nightmares 
you know, they're dredged through swamps, they're whatever. It's like yeah. you you put them through hell and they have to learn all this mountain of dialogue. And, you know, I mean, it's, so it's, it's, that is a very brutal, uh, that's probably the worst job in, in all of filmmaking, but it's the yeah. one so many people want to do, you know, and that's the yeah. thing. It's like, because all it takes is like one successful person, one Bruce Campbell or whatever that comes out of it that you idolize and worship and, you know, it's all worth it. So when it's good, it's good. Yeah. You know what I mean? How did you like your stay with Full Moon? Um, it was interesting. I, I was I worked for them for about five years. Um, I learned a, a lot. Like I said, I learned a lot of what not to do or what I maybe would would try and do differently. <laughs> the thing I think the biggest thing is I learned from them how to polish something more. Like how to you know that the, the I think prior to that. I never really thought, oh, that it, it doesn't really matter if I polish a movie up or whatever. It's it's people appreciate it because it's, you know, it's got those rough edges or whatever. And Full Moon kind of taught me that with a little bit of polish, you'll be, you can t- make something that's, you know, that's treat, treated more respectfully by, you know, if you want to continue making movies and make stuff that's a little bigger budget or, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. That's, that was kind of one lesson, I guess, um, that I learned. But in the end, you know, they, they're a factory. And they, he, I mean, Charlie makes no bones about it, much like Lloyd Kaufman with trauma. I mean, their exactly, yeah. thing is just, vo- it's a volume business. And, and I understand why, because that's the only way to survive in this business is mm-hmm. you have to just keep making a lot of product and, you know, hope that one of the, you know, for every 10 movies you make, hope that one or two of them actually do some business that'll carry, you know, I mean, whether it was Canon films, I mean, all these companies that have come and gone, that's, it's all the same formula. They got to make a bunch of movies, you know, and Hollywood, you know, is doing the same thing. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that was, it was, I think I left there at the time, probably more bitter about the experience than looking back on it now and realizing how much experience and, and wisdom I gained and, you know, that, that it was a lot of fun. I mean, you, you know, it was, I was getting paid, for the real money for the first time in my life to, to work on movies. And that's, you know, that's a great thing. Yeah. Beat that. Yeah. Mad Mel up here is about to work with full moon. being executive. <laughs> yeah. Right. Executive yeah. I signed producer. up for the ginger, the ginger weed man. <laughs> okay. I've lost track <laughs> of those movies. Those were made right after I left. They had made the first one. So I've never seen any of them actually. Yeah. There's a, there's a new ginger weed man movie coming out and I somehow managed to, uh, stumble upon an ad about, you know, getting an executive producer credit for buying the full moon channel. Oh, okay. There so, you, go. you know, to be, I grew up on full moon movies. I grew up on trauma movies, you know, the, right. every Friday night, like that was mom and dad's thing. They go rent a, you know, a movie and it was always horror. Absolutely. You know, we, we always say that a lot of the movies we watched, we probably were way too young to watch when we watched them. Right. <laughs> that was the, the video rental days. Yeah. And like that experience, like the kids these days, they don't even know. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But yeah, like when I, I was telling Matt about the whole thing and, you know, he's like, that's cool because you'll always have that, that tie, even though, you know, so many movies do come out of full moon Right. You know, it's it's a company that everybody knows that name. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how I mean, I, I get my hats off to Charlie because I don't know how he continues. You know, back when I was dealing with him, he he had a, a company called Kushner Lock that was sort of paying for all the kids movies. And that was kind of financing the whole enterprise. But he would 
sell stuff to Blockbuster and Hollywood Video, but they're gone. Yeah. You know, and now we don't even have family video. You know, it's it's literally just Redbox and stream. He's got his own streaming service, obviously. So, but I mean, I you know that he continues to to crank out so many movies when there's less avenues to you know to for people to see that stuff now. I mean, it's you know it's admirable. yeah. I thought it was great because like right at the start of the Corona, the whole Corona epidemic, he comes out with the Corona, the Corona zombie movie. Yeah. And I'm like, this disease has been it. out for five minutes and you've got to right. out. Like, well, I remember when the, Blair, <laughs> the, the weekend that the Blair Witch Project came out, Charlie held, had an, held an all hands meeting and was like, we got to, we got to do something like this. We can make a movie like this. And they actually did something called the St. Francisville experiment, I think it was called. We did some post-production work on it, but he was calling everybody into his office that Monday looking for ideas. We were all pitching him ideas. And I don't remember who actually won and got to make that thing, but it did get made. You know, I don't think it did nearly the business that Blair Witch did, but he's good about that. I mean, he jumps on those yeah, trends. He called, he called you guys in on Monday, and by Sunday the movie was wrapped. <laughs> <laughs> well, not quite that fast, but yeah. <laughs> we've, done some of, we've done some of those, too. <laughs> yeah. Ozone. We didn't get a chance to bring up Ozone. I love Ozone as well. Yeah, that was the little movie that could and continues to. I just, you know, there was so so little money, but a lot of time. That was kind of my, after making some less desirable shot on video movies prior to that, the, the infamous six pack, I was kind of like, you know, the, the biggest problem is not money, it's time. We just need to slow things down and find a way to spend a little more time on it, you know, and make it more of a craft. You know, that's what filmmaking is supposed to be. So that was, that was what ozone was intended to be was just to to put a little more style, mood lighting, you know, just focus on the stuff that makes it more cinematic. Yeah. The horror ambiance. Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) I mean, a lot of movies, you know, you're, you're moving so fast, how much, of that kind of stuff can you really expect to do you know it's every if you're changing camera angle every time you change camera angles and lighting and all that kind of stuff it takes time and most filmmakers just you know that's not a luxury they have i know people never i know filmmakers never pick a favorite with their films it's like their kids but do you have a film that you would buy extra christmas presents for if you could (laughs) <laughs> well they're all my they're all my red-headed stepchildren I like to look at it that way. um well i mean ozone definitely was one i mean that's that's very, uh, one that's very close to my heart i have to say probably i would never have said this 30 years ago but robot ninja is very close to my heart just because it was of all the creative frustration i was feeling i felt like that's you know and now that it's been cleaned up it's actually the movie that i would have liked to have made you know all those years ago um you know i that th- i mean you you, you lo- i love and hate all of them like none of them have ever been perfect you know but i think that's at, now that at, i'm a parent you know and i have a, a 12 year old son and a five and a half year old daughter i realize that that's just the way you know no there is no such thing as perfect kids there's not going to be a perfect situation you have to accept you know certain flaws and certain things that, you know, there's people, you know, they're like just little people like us. And that's how I feel about the movies too. It's like, you know, the, the flaws are what make them what they are. It's, you know, that's what I think when people, when I talk to other people, I realize, Oh, okay. Yeah. You're, you're looking at, you're not looking at the fact that it's not perfect. You're, you're embracing the flaws. So the flaws is what's making the flaws, make it perfect. Exactly. So to speak. That's right. You know right. what I mean? That's right. But I respect that. Mel, you have any uh, 
Any more questions for JR? I don't actually. Surprisingly, I don't. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Everybody Usually... should get out there and show JR super support, super duper support. Thank you, sir. You know what I mean? Appreciate it. Do you want to tell everybody where they can go check out all your stuff and support in the streaming and make com. Yeah, makeflix.com. That's where all this stuff is is available for sale. I mean, there's we I sell a lot of stuff through other channels. I, we still do Amazon and things like that too. But if you go to Makeflix, you get a better selection, to, uh, certain exclusive stuff that's not available anywhere else. And and you know we're we're support you're supporting a growing catalog of uh, you know low budget independence. And I'll make sure when we air this episode that I throw the link on so that people know where exactly to go yeah, in order be great. to buy Thank them you. too. Absolutely. Um, can can you be found on social media? Do you, are you? Oh yeah, I'm on I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, all the I'm pretty much everywhere. I don't. I'm not, I'm not as active as a lot of people are. I don't post a ton of stuff. I, I most of the stuff that I do post is business related, just you know f- to keep you know keep yeah. that machine going. But uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very easy to find on social media. Support this man. JR Thank is an, I- an icon in independent film. It was a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, we you thank you I mean? for joining us tonight. An honor to be here. Thank you. You know what I mean? We'll love to have you on again sometime. Absolutely. We'd love to. All right. Well, you have a good night over there. You too. You too. We'll thank catch you. everybody on the next episode of Shock right. Treatment with Absolutely. Matt and Maddie. Very good. All right. Thank <laughs> you.